of an army like the Assyrian army. Let me read to you. We, we know about this siege from the historical books of the Bible. 2 Kings 18 has a part of the story in 2 Chronicles 32. Let me read to you an excerpt from 2 Chronicles 32. After this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, who was besieging Lachish with all his forces, sent his servants to Jerusalem, to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and to all the people of Judah who were in Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, On what are you trusting that you endure the siege in Jerusalem? Is not Hezekiah misleading you, that he may give you over to die by famine and by thirst, when he tells you the Lord our God will deliver us from the land of the king of Assyria. Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of the other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands all able to deliver their lands out of my hand? Now therefore do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you in this fashion and do not believe him. For no god of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? So this messenger from Sennacherib says, look at all the countries around you and how they have fallen before me. There is no hope. Look, no one else had any hope. You do not have any hope And in verse 18, at the end of this passage, we read this, and they shouted it, this is Sennacherib's servants, they shouted it with a loud voice in the language of Judah to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten and terrify them in order that they may take the city. So not only is this army outside, not allowing any supplies in or out, or any people in, or out, and there's no way for Jerusalem to, to overpower this army because the p- army is too powerful. And then they start with this psychological warfare. Imagine being under siege in a city, and they had these loudspeakers blaring in your language that there is no hope over and over again. And the prospect of dying by famine and by thirst, of starving to death. A terrible way to die. Second Chronicles 32 gives us a picture of the total warfare that Judah experienced at this time in its history. And they were people just like us. And they would have been terrified. Here is this super powerful army, day and night, taunting them, calling them out on their lack of hope, drilling into their minds there is no hope. And this is where Micah speaks. Micah will speak hope to a people who have no hope. And that's the message for us today, that even when it seems like there is no hope, God brings hope. 
And as I've said before, I think it is worth repeating that when I'm talking about hope, here's what you need to understand hope is. Hope is not, well, I hope we have ice cream with our brunch after church, although that would be awesome. (laughs) Hope is a guaranteed hope in the Bible. That when God says, here is your hope for a good future, it is guaranteed by God's sovereign power. So as I refer to hope throughout this and the various aspects of hope that we see God giving to these people, that when God speaks, it happens. And this is something that no other religion or thought in any philosophy can offer. Christianity alone, because it is God guaranteeing the hope, Christianity is the only religion of true hope. Everything else is a maybe. And so as you see hope here, as you see these promises for a blessing on God's people, know that when God makes a promise, he keeps it. So our big idea, if you're following along in your outline, in your bulletin, is this, that we find our hope in the king who gathers, rescues, and brings victory to his people. So let's first look at verses 1 to 5 and look at a hopeful people. Now, these verses are referring to a future time. It's not exactly clear. Some scholars debate whether this is the millennial kingdom that's referred to in Revelation 20 or if it's referring to the new heavens and the new earth of Revelation 21. I'm not going to get into those details. It's an interesting discussion. And sometimes in the Old Testament, those two events are viewed as one, just as when you go up to a mountain when you're far away, the two peaks can look right next to each other, but as you get closer, there's distance. The same thing can happen in the Old Testament when talking about the end of time. And so what we are going to see this is that there is a future of hope. And we're going to focus on that aspect today. And central to these first five verses is this hope is centered around the mountain of the house of the Lord. So let's start reading about the mountain of God's presence in verses 1 to 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So throughout your Old Testament, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, and the temple, which... Jerusalem, the city, was on top of Mount Zion, and the temple was in Jerusalem. All of these can refer to God's presence among his people. God is not the God of the deism of our early history in America, where he is just this distant God who wound up the clock of creation and stepped away. No, he is a God who is among his 
people. And we see that here as God is pictured of being on this mountain and people are able to be in relationship with him. Again, the God of the universe makes it possible for us to be in relationship with him. He is among his people, and the God who melted the mountains in chapter 1 here builds up his mountain to be the highest mountain. Now again, in this culture back then, you would worship gods on a mountain or a high place so you could be closer, so you'd have a better reception to call them. And so when God's saying, "Is my mountain is going to be the biggest and the tallest, He's saying, I am the biggest and tallest and most glorious God. In fact, I'm the only true God. So God shall be among his people and that we can be in relationship so that we, he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Again, an idea of being in relationship with him, being his people. If you belong to God, you are one who walks in his path, the path that he wants you to do. So first, our hope is centered on the very presence of God among his people. Secondly, this is a mountain for all people. Again, verses 1 to 3. At the end of verse 1, and it shall be lifted above up above the hills, and peoples, groups of people, shall flow to it. Verse 2, and many nations shall come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Verse 3, he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. Here's the picture. God on his mountain is acting as the king. And he's not just the king of Israel, because if he was just the king of Israel, he would not be able to judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. See, one of the jobs of a king back then was to be a judge as well. And so if you're judging between nations, that means you have authority over all of these different nations. And so Micah is telling us that God is a God over all people. But that also means he's a God for all people. He is the creator of all people, but yet the nations shall come to his mountain. This is something that I think we misunderstand We look at the New Testament and we say, okay, there finally God said I should be for everybody. But throughout the entire Bible, God has always been about the business of bringing people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to himself to be in relationship with him. God does not divide over national and ethnic lines. God is a God of all people for all people. This mountain where the people come to, we see in verses 3 and 4, is a mountain of peace. Here is a beautiful picture of the hope we have in Christ. Verses 3 and 4. 
He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. These two verses, when you really think about the history of our world, I I don't even know if we can comprehend this. Weapons are so useless, you turn them into farm equipment. (laughs) Like they are literally, you're like, I have no need for a weapon to defend my, there's no need to defend myself so I can make this into a shovel. And I love the end of verse four, or sorry, verse three. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Throughout history, people have been trained to be soldiers and people who defend other people. It's one of the oldest jobs in the history of the world, being a soldier. But what Micah is saying, what God is saying through Micah, is that in this future hope, soldiers are unnecessary. You don't even need to teach someone to fight. This is a picture of violence being eradicated. No one needs to learn how to defend themselves anymore. This is a picture of peace. But look how the peace is secured, how the peace comes about. End of verse 4. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. God is the one who will bring about this peace. This peace is for those who belong to him. He is the only way. He is the only one powerful enough. No other person can decide between nations. God is the God of all nations, and God is the only one who can, in a sense, destroy conflict and war. But those who belong to him will receive the blessing of this peace that surpasses all understanding. And that peace is what guards our hearts and our minds. (laughs) And then finally, as we look at this mountain in verse 5, we see that it is a mountain of eternity. This peaceful presence of God among his people is not here and then gone. It is here for eternity. Verse 5, for all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God. How long? Forever and ever. This is not a ceasefire. This is not a time of peace that is short. If, If you live on this world for any amount of time, really, 
Do you know what it's like to engage in war, have a time of peace, but then go right back to war? That will not happen in God's future. War is done, and peace is eternal. So that's a picture of the hope we have in Christ. In verses 6 to 8, Micah goes on to describe the gathering of God's people. So we're a people of hope, but we're a people who are gathered. Now as we read this, I want you to remember the judgment that was promised. The judgment that was promised to Judah was being exiled, meaning kicked out of their homes and come under the rule of a foreign power. So we have captivity and not being in your own country. So if you're someone who is in exile, away from your home and under the captivity of someone else, what do you want? You want freedom and you want to go back home. So listen to the hope in verses 6 to 8. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, for you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem." In this part of the chapter, Micah tells those who know exile is coming. They are going to be exiled. They will be disciplined in that way by God. But the promise is that the exile will not last. And they will be gathered back into a people. And not only will they be gathered back into a people, but they will come under a king who is God. They're not just going to be any people. They're going to be his people. And notice who he gathers. I will assemble the lame, and I will gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted, and the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. God's people, his gathered people, are not going to be gathered because of how great they are, but by the mercy of God. There's something that we need to see about our lives as God's people. That when God rescues us, as we're going to talk about in a little bit, he always rescues us into a people. He always rescues us into a family. You always have, as the New Testament talks about, brothers and sisters in Christ. And the head of that family, the head of that nation, is God himself. And again, to those who are about to go into captivity, into exile, the promise is put in terms they would understand that there is freedom and there is the promise of home 
For those of us living on this side of the cross, we understand the freedom, not from Assyrians, but from sin, death, and the devil. And for those of us who live in the country in which we were born, our home is not a country, but our home is eternity with God forever. As God gathers his people from every nation and sets them free and brings them home. We are in exile, but we will not stay in exile forever. In fact, when we finally come home, God will reign over us from this time forth and forevermore. There's an end to exile, and the hope is that the rescue is permanent, whereas exile comes and goes. Let's look at this idea of being rescued in verses 9 to 10. So we're people of hope, we're gathered people, we're a rescued people. Verse 9, now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country, and you shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. Micah, Micah is calling out to their lack of hope and calling them to see where their hope is from. And at the end of verse 9 and the beginning of verse 10, he confronts them with the pain that they will experience. Now again, as someone who has never experienced labor, I'm not going to speak where I am not qualified, especially on Mother's Day. (laughs) You guys think I'm crazy? (laughs) But look at, yeah, (laughs) thanks Shirley. But look at verse 10. I'm going to speak what Micah says as someone who also has not experienced labor. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. Childbirth, there is intense pain. And Micah is confronting them with the intense pain that they will face going to Babylon in exile. But... Pain is not forever. The pain has an end eventually. And that's where God speaks to them this. There, meaning in Babylon, you shall be rescued. Notice you won't rescue yourself. You won't uprise and get back. You need to be rescued. 
the Lord will redeem you, will buy you back, will set you free out of your captivity from the hands of your enemies. Just as the people of Judah are confronted with the fact that this discipline, this hard discipline of exile is from God, we saw that in the earlier chapters of Micah, and we see it earlier when in verse 6 he says, those whom I have afflicted, that's God talking. But he's saying, the hope is that I will rescue you, I will redeem you. You trust me because I'm going to save you. Again, picture that's the story I read at the beginning of this overpowered army surrounding them and no hope of rescue from this army, but God says, trust me, I will rescue you. I want to read to you a very interesting verse from the Second Kings 18 version of Sennacherib's taunt. This is what Sennacherib's messenger says to the people of Jerusalem. Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. Sennacherib calls out the people of Jerusalem and he says, you guys are not, in fact, trusting God. You're trusting the king of Egypt. And guess what he's like? He is like a reed that you have in your hand and it's cracked, but maybe you don't know it, and so you lean on it and it snaps in your hand and cuts your hand up. And it demonstrates that it was not, you couldn't lean on it. Because when you tried to, it broke. One of the things that God is teaching his people through the siege of Sennacherib is to show them the false gods that they are trusting. Our trust is found in God and in God alone. Not in the treaties that Judah had with Assyria, not in political connections. Our trust is not found there. Our trust is found in God, and we can trust that he will rescue us. Again, for those of us living on this side of the cross, we don't have a sieging army outside of our walls, but we have the enemy of our sin that we cannot defeat that we need to be rescued. And God sent his son to rescue us from that sin, that by his grace, through faith, we can be redeemed and rescued. And not only rescued, but we can find victory. Look at verses 11 to 13. We see that God's people are a victorious people. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, 
O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn into iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and you shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. The nations are looking at God's people under siege, about to be defeated, and eventually defeated by the Babylonians in 583 B.C. And what they do is they say that God's people are cursed because they're enduring this discipline. But in verse 12, God's response to this is that they don't know the thoughts of the Lord. They don't know that this is discipline to bring God's people back to himself. And that after the discipline is completed, after the discipline has done, God will exalt his people again. And here's a wonderful metaphor of God's people as a big old ox. In fact, God will use his people to bring judgment on the wicked people who are mocking his people. In verse 12, he has gathered them, that is the nations, as sheaves to the threshing floor, as wheat on the floor, and to separate the wheat from the chaff, you got a big old ox with a horn of iron and hooves of bronze. And God will bring about victory for his people. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in, many, in pieces many peoples and shall, shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. In the end, God and his people win. Justice is done and victory through God's power. Victory over evil and wicked and sin is complete. And the people shall give glory to God. They shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. The picture, the metaphor is of a victorious army and not taking the spoils of war for themselves, but giving the spoils of war to God who gave victory. It's an objective picture of us giving glory to God for what he has done in Christ. The glorious hope is that God will win the victory. God and his goodness will always prevail. Again, the people in Jerusalem surrounded by an army, victory seems impossible. But God says, I will have victory. Good will triumph over evil. And my will will be done. And that's a guarantee. Let me close this morning with a couple concluding thoughts. Number one, we find hope in an eternity of peace with God. This idea, this picture of war being obsolete, war being eradicated, that is how we find peace. God is the only one who offers secure and eternal peace. Number two, we find hope in that God's people are always a people. When we are redeemed, when we are saved, when we are rescued, 
We are not alone. We have God's people with us. We always have a community of believers. Number three, we find hope in that we are a rescued people. God did not leave us in our sin. God did not leave us under judgment. God did not leave us in exile. God sent his son to rescue us by the blood of the cross. And number four, we find hope in that we are a victorious people. One day, all sin and injustice and evil will be brought to justice. Good will prevail. And it'll prevail because God is the king. And God will win. And so when you think about where your hope is found, that is the solid foundation of hope. Hope that cannot be taken away. Hope that cannot be overcome. Hope that is found in Christ alone. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the certain hope we have through what you have done. That through your Son you have rescued us. That you offer us the sure promise of peace and joy for eternity in your very presence. That we would stand on those promises and that we would rest in the certain hope that we find in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.